Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. All right, everybody, welcome back. Now, continuing today with this ongoing series on waterway regeneration and a deep dive into marine ecosystems, I had the pleasure of speaking with Brian Von Herten. Now, Brian is an ocean scientist, engineer, and entrepreneur. And though much of his career has been in Silicon Valley, where he developed innovative technical solutions for companies like Pixar, Dolby, and Microsoft, Brian is also the founder and executive director of the nonprofit, The Climate Foundation which is an institute working to regenerate life in the world's oceans and reverse global warming within our lifetimes. Through Brian's work with the Climate Foundation, he's been promoting the concept of marine permaculture through ocean seaweed and kelp farming in a way that could potentially revitalize areas of degraded coastline as well as spark a whole new economy around marine ecosystem stewardship. In this interview, Brian starts by explaining just how immense and important the kelp forests of the world are by describing the impact that they've had on the ecology of the west coast of the United States. I think it's so important to regain reference to what our healthy and intact biosphere used to be because all of us alive today have almost no reference to what our natural world even looked like before humans started to alter and degrade it so severely. Brian also breaks down what it could mean for the economy and health of the West if these underwater forests could be regenerated and cared for. We also explore some of the challenges in getting sea farming and ocean permaculture projects started and especially funded, since the initial costs are often much higher than land-based initiatives. We cover a lot of ground in this talk and even touch on topics like how marine farming fits into a regenerative economy, and what those of you listening can do to support and even start your own marine permaculture projects. So be sure to stick around for some great action steps by the end. Now with all of that said, I'll turn things over now to Brian. Hey Brian, I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Thanks so much for making time to be on the podcast. Hi Oliver, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So look, as much as I would love to go directly into your personal background and how you started working in marine permaculture and ecosystem restoration, why don't we start even before that and go into the natural history of some of the ecosystems, especially on the ocean side, that give you reference as to what 
optimal health in a pre-industrial ecology at, at its full potential can look like so that we can orient ourselves towards something that is really worth regenerating? Yes, I'm happy to do that, Oliver. You're reminding me, back in high school, I did a, a paper on um, the, uh, the geology that affected the, uh, the spit of land that I was living on. Uh, Cape Cod is a geologic feature formed by the ice ages. And these ice sheets that came down from northern Canada deposited the sand that formed Cape Cod and my natural curiosity was understanding the geologic history of Cape Cod. And so I started, I, I remember in high school writing this paper on, you know, what created Cape Cod, the ice ages that created the um, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket Islands in a series of stages over the past um, tens and hundreds of thousands of years. And so it was through that understanding of the ice ages and the transformed climate of the earth I was able to get an understanding for the land I was living on, get an understanding for what was happening uh, and, and what the changes were. And I read with interest that we were scheduled to enter the next ice age, uh, like we were in a cooling trend and that by default, the earth was going to go into another ice age. Little did I know that uh, with our greenhouse gas emissions, we canceled the next ice age and we created the next global warming spike <clears throat> of unprecedented proportions in the last uh, tens of millions of years. Yeah, that throws things out of whack quite a bit. So it sounds like your interest in this really started from an earlier schooling level. And since then, using the references of those other ecosystems of pre-industrial times, like the kelp forests of the Western coast, can you tell me a little bit more about what these marine ecosystems looked like before we started to meddle with them so much? Yes, I went back and I studied um, the old U.S. geodetic survey maps, the oldest one of which was around 1853. And these maps actually portrayed the kelp forest off of California. And what I was amazed at was uh, on this map that I looked at from 1853, it showed a river of kelp a kilometer wide stretching from Point Concepcion in Central California all the way to the Mexican border. And it's like, what is that? I mean, I've never even seen that. In fact, no one has a living memory today of the kelp forests that once were back in the 1800s. And it wasn't just one map. There was a map from 1868. There was a map from 1888. And each one of them showed a continuous river of kelp, a kilometer wide going from Point Concepcion to the Mexican border. I was just amazing. And <clears throat> it wasn't until the 1930s where there was a, another U.S. geodetic survey map that showed that farming had come into the area and that the, um, the siltation, the soil, the runoff, and the nutrients had gotten into the coastal waters and had effectively silted up the nearshore water is enough that the juvenile baby kelps 25 meters beneath the surface didn't have enough light anymore to grow and they died and then that river of kelp diminished and disappeared and became discontinuous and by the early 2000s uh, there was hardly any river left there was there was no river left it was just a spot or two of kelp here and there more than 90 percent depleted and uh, that to me was just shocking that no one alive today had a living memory 
of the kelp forests that once were. And that's such a loss in our collective consciousness as well, because without that as reference, how do we know what we're trying to get back to? That is a good point. You know, there's this principle called shifting baselines, and it applies to salmon fisheries up around the Pacific Northwest, or my own hometown, I mean, Cape Cod itself. Do you know why they named it? Because, you know, a majority of the able-bodied men on Cape Cod 200 years ago were fishing cod. And, you know, I, I'm a snorkeler. I go swimming all the time. I'd never seen a codfish. So, you know, I spent years and years learning how to swim and uh, you know, snorkeling and whatnot around Cape Cod, but I've never seen a codfish because the cod had gone, you know, commercially extinct in, um, on Cape Cod. So there's a, there's a shifting baseline, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, people talk about walking on the backs of the salmon across a river because there were so many salmon, you know, it's like just a river choke full of salmon. And, uh, those are some of the unprecedented, uh, events that, you know, that we have a hard time getting back to. Yeah, for sure. So with that said, how could we start to move towards that kind of abundance again? And what impacts would it have on the communities and the inhabitants of those areas if we managed to do so? Well, I think this is primarily about re-understanding the, the trim tabs, if you will. One of my favorite systems thinkers, Buckminster Fuller, talks about the trim tab on a ship or an airplane and the trim tab shifts the rudder and the rudder shifts the tail of the airplane and the tail of the airplane shifts the entire airplane, even if it's an Airbus 380 or a Boeing 747. So can we be the trim tabs on our civilization? Can we be the trim tabs on our ecosystem and get us back to regeneration, uh, regeneration of the uh, ecosystem services that end up creating enough food for people, enough food for nature, and ultimately a carbon balance that gets restored in the oceans and in the soils and balances our carbon budget in the atmosphere. And along those lines, can you give us an overview now of the work that you're doing and some of the projects that are helping you to become one of the trim tabs to guide towards regeneration? Certainly. I think one example is understanding the role that kelp forests play on, on the coastal ecosystems and that seaweed forests and seaweed farms play in the tropics. Um, I was really surprised to learn that the tropical rainforest can fix up to 2,200 grams of carbon per square meter per year, just one way of measuring productivity, if you will, the primary fixation of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and the creation of ecosystem life, the creation of biomass. What surprised me was that the kelp forest could do 15% more carbon than the tropical rainforest of Brazil. I mean, who would have thought that the kelp forest sitting offshore California fixed 15% more carbon each year than the tropical rainforest, and that in many senses, the tropical rainforest of the West Coast could be, could be considered to be the, the kelp forest that's offshore. And when I learned of the enormous carbon fixing potential of kelp forests as just the beginning of what I would call a trophic cascade of ecosystem services, not only are we growing lots and lots of kelp, but we're creating fish habitat. And that fish habitat is a place for all the sardines to hang out. And some people say, oh, sardine school offshore. But when they don't have a school, 
the sardines hang out in the kelp. And if you want to make another school of sardines, you start out with a big kelp forest and you let the sardines multiply inside the kelp forest and some of them spill out and those, those will form a bigger school or they'll get harvested by game fish or even apex predators. But that's an example of a trim tab and that is making sure that kelp forests can thrive to enable the fish habitat to occur. And if you build the fish habitat, they will come. There's this inevitable relationship that, you know, if habitat is more important than food for forage fish, because if they don't have habitat, they're going to get eaten that night. And uh, so they need to have habitat. And when you build that habitat, you get the forage fish, and then you get the game fish, and then you get the apex predators. And that creates an, a rich, diverse ecosystem that is balanced. And, you know, one of my advisors back at Caltech, Dick Feynman, liked to say, you don't understand a system until you've built it. And I would add to that, we don't understand an ecosystem until we've rebuilt it and recapitulated the trophic cascades and the healthy, vibrant biodiversity that we see on the kelp forest today. That's fantastic because it, it really seems to be addressing the root cause there and the aspect of the ecosystem that is key for all of those other functions to flourish, which is starting with the plant life. And I know that there are a lot of programs these days to reintroduce different members of different hierarchies in the food web in order to sort of kickstart the regeneration of an entire ecosystem. And you're starting there with the kelp forest. And in reestablishing these, let's say, base, baseline aspects of the food web, it fits in with a larger business model as well, because you're not just dependent on donations and a nonprofit model to do this. There's actually the potential to create a lot of products that are useful for plenty of different industries. Do you want to speak on the business model for a minute? Definitely. Our whole objective is to build a self-sustaining marine permaculture industry that can harvest uh, sustainably millions of dollars in seaweed. It's kind of like mowing the lawn and million dollars, millions of dollars in fish per square kilometer per year. And those fish spill out of the forest around the sides. And those, those fish that spill out on the sides can be harvested while leaving intact the incubator, which is the, the forest itself. And that sustainable harvesting, uh, mowing the lawn, if you will, of the top meter of seaweed and the fish around the edge of the system that we view as a very sustainable model that can enable big ocean nations to thrive around the world and even offshore, even landlocked states can do offshore systems like this. And up until now, we've mostly talked about kelp when we're talking about seaweed, but seaweed isn't just one thing. Can you tell me about some of the different varieties and the different conditions that they need to grow and thrive? Yes, there are over 14,000 species of seaweed, and we've probably figured out how to commercially utilize one or two dozen. So isn't that amazing? Um, so there are red seaweeds, there are brown seaweeds, and there are green seaweeds. The kelps fall under a subset of the brown seaweeds, and each of them has special properties and characteristics, but there are thousands of reds and thousands of browns and thousands of greens. And so it's like we're at the tip of the iceberg as far as species diversity and uses. There's so many things to do with so many of the seaweeds and they have special properties. In fact, I keep being astounded at the superfood nature of seaweeds for human health, for animal and livestock health, and for um, the health of the ecosystem. I'm just 
astounded at the multiple benefits that we've been able to identify for uh, sea plants in general. Well, let's dive into that a little bit more. Tell me about some of the products that can be made from seaweed and especially some of the ones that you're most excited about because I know there's a lot of them. Yes, well, the list goes on and on, but I start with the seven Fs and that is food, feed, and fertilizer, fish, uh, biofuel, and fiber. And the, the seventh F is kind of funny, pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and I'm going to put in that category kind of nutraceuticals. Uh, and, you know, it's surprising that um, both the nutraceuticals that we use today and many of the pharmaceuticals are actually found from marine organisms. They, they, they discover them in the marine environment and they figure out how to produce them in isolation. But it's really nature that's finding half of the pharmaceuticals that we end up using, which is fascinating to me. But I, I would go back to Michael Pollan, and that is that um, whole foods are better than better for us, mostly plants, not too much. And, um, you know, the mostly plants and the whole food aspect is really key because I find that a whole food seaweed that's un, that relatively unprocessed is better than some refined, you know, some, some refined product from the seaweed because it has such a complex set of nutrients. And we're finding even that um, fresh seaweed is even better than dry seaweed. So we're actually thinking, okay, how can we develop some new food products that are kind of in the fresh category? Or, you know, because I, when I go surfing, I actually go and I eat seaweed in the water when I go surfing. Nice. Because you know, clean water, it's just like you're not going to get fresher seaweed. And uh, I'm always, you know, testing out different species. Almost all of the 14,000 species are non-toxic and many of them are really tasty and edible. They tend to have really interesting textures. Um, many of them don't have such a strong flavor, but you know, it's kind of like pasta. Everybody loves pasta, but is it really the pasta they're loving or is it the sauces they put on the pasta? Right, right. Imagine like there's a spaghetti seaweed even. Imagine that you took a spaghetti seaweed and used that as your pasta instead. And now you've got gluten-free, low glycemic index, wonderful whole food, that is underneath your beautiful sauces. It's amazing the potential of how it could be combined and explored in a culinary sense as well, for sure. Oh, it's fascinating. And we've got so many chefs really enthused to incorporate seaweed into everyday products. And as a garnish, as a side dish, it is probably the most healthy thing that you could put on your plate. It's just amazing. I mean, we look at Asia, where in Japan and Thailand, they have seven times lower incidence of breast cancer. Um, you look at Cognitive function and cognitive health span. Seaweeds are the original source of EPA and DHA, which is brain food. And, uh, and then cardiovascular, it's just amazing. When you have a regular dose of seaweed, they've done this with rats and mice, um, it actually reverses the metabolic syndrome that leads to obesity. And so literally they would like feed these mice McDonald's diet. And then, and then if they add a little bit of seaweed to their water, they go from obese to not obese just because they've added the seaweed. <laughs> wow. So I was just blown away that it could reverse metabolic syndrome. But all of Sounds these like effects. There's real potential are, there, yeah. It is. I just, it's, it's amazing to me. Well, talk to me now about creating an entire ecosystem out of this ocean farming model. I know that we've sort of focused on the cultivation of the seaweed aspect of it, but that's really sort of just the starter or the environment that allows for so much other life to thrive what are the different levels of life in the ocean, almost like we would consider them, let's say, in a food forest or an agroforestry system in the seven levels of a forest? What are the levels in an aquatic system? Are you talking about different trophic levels? 
Yeah, and, and the, the life forms that occupy them. Yes, well, um, I think it starts with the autotrophs, right? And the autotrophs are what are actually making biomass out of mineral sources of nutrients. So we're talking about nitrate, we're talking about phosphate, we're talking about micronutrients. And that is a combination of the macroalgae seaweeds and the microalgae plankton. So the plankton, they, they fix um, all, these, all these nutrients and, and carbon dioxide, and they're floating around and they make carbohydrates. And they float around and they get eaten by mussels and bivalves and invertebrates and all the filter feeders, uh, as well as some fish. You know, sardines end up eating plankton too. So that's the food for the, for the sardines. Now the habitat for the sardines comes initially from macroalgae. And the macroalgae are the kelp forests, the seaweed forests. And that is again, an autotrophic production. Those macroalgae, the kelp, um, synthesize biomass from the inorganic nutrients, from the nitrate and the phosphate and the micronutrients. And so they're effectively creating the stuff of life out of inorganic materials. And that's where this whole trophic level begins. Then, um, so the sardines get their food from the microalgae and their habitat from the macroalgae, and those become the, the fin fish, if you will. But before then, I will mention the invertebrates, which are living around the kelp forest and the, invertebrate, and, and the, and the seaweed forest. And sometimes they're actually on the seafloor, and other times they're actually, as epiphytes, uh, actually on the kelp itself. And so they live in this ecosystem on the kelp or on the seafloor. And it, there's enormous habitat, of course. There's a lot of food. Lobsters are known to eat kelp. Abalones eat kelp. I mean, so many different invertebrates uh, eat kelp for, you know, for living. It's, it's the food, the fundamental food of the ecosystem. So that's kind of the second level. The fin fish begin with the sardines and the anchovies, even juvenile salmon. And that's kind of the second trophic level because they're eating microalgae. And then you've got game fish that are eating the um, forage fish, the, ve the vegetarian, so to speak. And then you've got uh, apex predators who are eating the game fish. And so it goes up the trophic level. Now what's significant is this, the DHA and the EPA, which is so neuroprotective, the Harvard Medical School has come out with reports on this. It's incredibly neuroprotective and it is created in the algae. And then it is, it is accumulated by the small forage fish. And that's one thing that makes sardines and anchovies and even small salmon very good to eat, very neuroprotective, is that they have accumulated the DHA and the EPA, omega-3 fatty acids, in their bodies. And that's where it comes from. It doesn't actually come from the fish, it comes from the algae. And that's fine, because but they also you know, are slowly accumulating some of the um, heavy metals, some of the mercury that came from fossil fuel burning and things like that. Um, and, and the gasoline, uh, there was lead put in gasoline and things like that. Mm -hmm. What happens is at the forage fish level, uh, the neuroprotective effects of the EPA and the DHA far outweigh any hazards. But as you go up to the game fish and then to the tuna fish, um, the levels of the heavy metals increases much more than the EPA and the DHA. So you start running into problems of um, mercury, which is coming from coal power plants, um, that's now distributed throughout the, the surface oceans in some places more than others. There's a lot of coal burning in China, for example. And so the South China Sea has um, some 
uh, 20 times the uh, level of mercury as the rest of the Pacific Ocean. So ironically, um, there's also this bioaccumulation so that the sardines have far less mercury than the game fish, which have left less mercury than the tuna fish. Um, what's amazing is that some tuna fish have 50 times the level of mercury that a sardine does. So ironically, um, a tuna fish from the South China Sea might have a thousand times the level of mercury as a, a sardine from the Pacific Ocean. And that is a very significant factor. So yeah. I'm a fan of small fish. I also eat seaweed. Um, and, and those are highly neuroprotective. But you have to be careful with the amount of large game fish that you actually eat. And, you know, these days, humans have farmed out, no, hu humans have captured 90% of the big fish in the ocean. And so the levels are far lower. And so it's much more impacted. And what we need to do is leave the big fish alone, let them repopulate, and uh, go for the small forage fish. And with marine permaculture, we're looking forward to growing a trillion more sardines without nets, without fish feed, and without deep water moorings, and enabling those sardine fisheries to thrive in a way that they did decades ago. You remember the Monterey sardine cannery, you know, off of Northern California, they could return to abundance. We've lost oh, some more than half of our major forage fisheries in the world have been decimated. And I think we've got the opportunity to regenerate those and we could do those with marine permaculture, one kelp forest at a time. Oh, that's so exciting. And it's very good to hear some hope at the end of that description of just how bad things have gotten. Now, we've also focused a lot on the marine ecosystems up until now, but we were speaking just before this interview and you told me that you're doing some more work in freshwater environments. Do you want to tell me about that now? Yes. So, you know, part of what I was looking at in my geologic history analysis was looking at the major events of the last 100 million years. And I came across this one 49 million years ago that was just was the strangest thing. It was called the Azola event. And it's like, what, what was that? Because there was this huge carbon drawdown associated with the Azola event. It's like, what's going on? Well, it turns out there's this aquatic fern called Azola, uh, and there's seven species alive today. And, you know, back 50 million years ago, there were crocodiles in the Arctic Ocean, and there were palm trees, and it was really hot up there. It was very warm. And, um, and, and this Azola existed up there, and every springtime, it would start growing out near the rivers, out towards the Arctic Ocean. And there was this lens of fresh water um, on the surface of the Arctic Ocean. And so this freshwater fern that could handle about five parts per thousand salt would start growing out across the Arctic Ocean and would potentially cover most of the million square kilometers uh, in one summer. I mean, it takes three days for Azola to double. And so you run through the math and yeah, 100 days of summer, you, you're pretty much at a thousand by a thousand, it's like a million square kilometers of Azola. And then autumn would come, and in the autumn, the light level would drop, the Azola would decay and die, and it would sink into the anoxic Arctic Ocean and lay down a layer of oil. And believe it or not, most of the oil we have in the Arctic today came from Azola. Wow. It's just amazing, like I couldn't even believe it, that one plant could draw down so much carbon and do it so quickly. I mean, that was just kind of blown away. It's like, wow. I mean, if that, if that works, I mean, it's like, why don't we just like grow some Azola and start fixing carbon? <laughs> well, so it turns out Azola does a great job of doubling every three days, fixing nitrogen, and actually 
ironically, it's the only freshwater vegetarian source I'm aware of, of producing EPA and DHA because inside every azola plant is this symbiotic cyanobacterium that comes from the ocean, fixes nitrogen, and guess what? It grows EPA and DHA. So like if you want your EPA and DHA and you want to eat fresh, a freshwater, you know, if you're a vegan or something, azola and seaweed is the way to go. And if you're like landlocked and freshwater, you want to grow azola and eat it because it's got this incredible neuroprotective brain food. I mean, that's what's going to give you cognitive health span. And, you know, the, the literature is already coming out showing that EPA and DHA, these kind of whole foods are, uh, that have EPA and DHA are a key to cognitive health span well into your, the later phases of life. And that's a, a great opportunity to, to really make that happen. So Azola is amazing. And if, you need a, if you've got a waterway that's got excess nitrate or phosphate, Azola is just going to soak it up and it'll take all the excess phosphate even if there's no nitrate left because it can fix its own nitrogen. So what might be growing in a, uh, an irrigation ditch or a stream or something like that, or if you have a river that's got too much you know, nutrients in it, you can put Azola in and harvest it. You've got to harvest it every three days or it's going to just take over and then sink and turn into a, an oxic mess. But if you harvest regularly, then it becomes uh, livestock feed. The fish like it. I've seen chickens fighting over it, and we fed it to cows and to horses with good results. And by the way, when you feed it to chickens, you get omega-3 eggs, which is great. Wow. Yeah, I'd never heard about this before. And is this just so new that it hasn't really made it out into the media yet? Or is, it, uh, is there something else holding it back? Well, I like to say the future is here today. It's just not broadly distributed yet. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but ironically. Examples of that. Yeah. So, I mean, Azola grows naturally in Louisiana. Azola Carolina is one of the seven species. Um, if it freezes, it tends to die. So it's really a warm water plant. But every springtime, you know, even in your cold environment, you could uh, grow some Azola and feed it to your animals, feed it to your livestock. Just make sure you harvest it every three days so that it, you know, uh, you've got to harvest half of it every three days to keep up with it. But assuming you do that and it stays, you know, nicely oxidative, it can pull all the nutrients out of that environment and you can get clean up your rivers, clean up your ponds, clean up your waterways, and you're going to have very healthy livestock as a result. That's pretty wild. And is it a simple process of just seeding the water? Well, yeah. I mean, it'll double every three days. You got to manage it. I mean, it's considered a weed and a pest in a lot of places, but I'll tell you, it's considered a green fertilizer in Vietnam. And when they're growing rice in the rice paddies, they put in the azola first and it grows and it fixes nitrogen. And then later the rice grows up and uses that nitrogen to grow better. And they have to reduce, they don't need as much nitrate fertilizer uh, on their rice paddies because they've got azola. Oh, that's wild. I don't remember seeing that when I lived in a rice growing community in the Philippines, but I should have, should have looked into it closer. I was mostly building buildings when I was there. <laughs> well, it's, it's broadly distributed uh, and used in Vietnam, but it has yet to really uh, kick in in India. And I'm not sure about Philippines. So I'd, I'd look to, I mean, Vietnam's a great example of where it's being used now. Okay. And is there any risk of it becoming an invasive species because it doubles so fast? Well, it exists naturally in places like Louisiana and Mississippi. So, you know, if it's, if you're going to like have it go back in there, then it's okay. Um, there are seven different species around the world and I'd look for a local species and try to use that. Yeah. Um, duckweed go, it grows in just two days, but it doesn't fix nitrogen. So it doesn't have quite the same properties. 
But, um, you know, we've managed to uh, grow Azola in various dry locations. And, um, you know, I think it's just checking with your local authorities. Sometimes they call these things weeds, but, you know, one person's weed is another person's bounty. Exactly. So it's all a matter of uh, finding the right combinations that are going to work well. And I wouldn't be surprised if you can go to your local drainage dish and find some Azola and start cultivating it. Yeah, I got to figure out what it looks like. I'm going to do some research after this. Is it something yeah, that you can buy, sort of like a, a spawn or a seed that you can then scatter into a waterway? We, well, we have, uh, we have purchased Azola for internal cultivation uh, in the United States, and so that can be done. Generally speaking, um, the, you know, it's, it's a warmer climate plant, and so it's something that you may need to uh, cultivate in a colder water region. Uh, to be able to, because, you know, seasonally in the summer, it can do a great job of absorbing nutrients. And then each, each springtime, you know, you might need to reintroduce it. Gotcha. All right. So we've talked about a number of different ways that this can be turned into a farming context and even some business models that can be made out of it. But setting up an ocean farming infrastructure, especially is a very expensive endeavor and it requires quite a bit of engineering. Where have you been finding support and financial backing to sort of launch the prototypes and the operating models to trial this? Well, there are several foundations who've helped us uh, from the United States and elsewhere. Um, we've uh, gotten support uh, from uh, the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, uh, Schmidt Futures, and um, some of the U.S. governmental organizations, including the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, for various uh, facets of marine permaculture. Some, um, one of the reasons we went to the Philippines early on is that there are a quarter million subsistence seaweed farmers today in the Philippines who are living on the front lines of climate disruption. The water is too warm, the nutrient levels are too low, and as a result, they uh, can grow seaweed and feed their families five months a year and not 12 months a year. And what we do with marine permaculture is provide deep water irrigation for these fresh seaweeds that enable them to thrive even during the driest portions of the year. And that's a really key insight is that by bringing irrigation to seaweed farms, as well as to regular terrestrial farms, we can ensure steady production uh, every month of the year. And that means that these subsistence farmers can have a way to feed their families 12 months a year. And that's essential to sustainable livelihoods and the sustenance of the seaweed farming communities and really our civilization fundamentally. Yeah, that's, that's very promising and it really brings in the community aspect of a project. And It does. Yeah, so and as we're looking at a project here, kind of give me a rundown, perhaps with a case example of one that you've helped to start. What is the process? Uh, let's say you've gotten the funding from the organizations that you might have mentioned, and uh, mm -hmm. what are some of the steps on the ground that are required to, to get this up and running? Well, we need a source of seaweeds, and uh, in the Philippines, there are several red seaweeds that are uh, commonly used to produce um, carrageenan for food products today, and that's a great traditional use. But then there's, you know, we're moving towards a biorefinery model, and the way the biorefinery model works is that you don't get just one product out of the seaweed like carrageenan. There's actually other foods, feeds, and fertilizers that can come off of the product, uh, come, come off the seaweed and generate multiple products with multiple revenue streams. So we see that as really a key part of uh, creating value, if you will, from the bounty 
that is nature's bounty of creating these wonderful seaweeds. And that's really key, not only for the quarter million seaweed farmers in the Philippines, but there's more than 2 million seaweed farmers in Indonesia that are also in the same situation. And so it's something that once we get it right in the Philippines, we can take to other countries and really enable that to work. That said, we're going through a series of engineering steps to get up from a very small scale irrigation farm, which we have now, up to a hectare scale, which is actually the standard size of farm that any seaweed farmer is allowed to have in the Philippines. By registering, you can basically get a permit for a hectare, and each um, member of a, a farmer's family can have a hectare to, uh, to grow and develop on their own. So that hectare size family farm is really a key model for us because we're seeing this as a sustainable cash flow size that's manageable by an individual or a family and yet can produce positive returns over time. And part of our developing of a biorefinery that would be transportable is really to uh, identify enough of the value chains to really make this a, um, a worthwhile enterprise for families around the world to undertake either um, there, you know, it's amazing how, how quickly the water gets deep near, near the Philippines. You could be a kilometer offshore and be in 200 to 300 meters of water, which is enough to do the upwelling that's needed. And so literally, you know, these this, uh, sardine fishermen go out and hang out on the marine permaculture and go fishing for sardines. And this is within the normal range of their sardine fishing boats. So they go out in the, around sunset, they spend most of the evening out there fishing uh, for sardines, and then they come in, uh, come back in afterwards. And what's interesting is that the marine permacultures themselves are the central focus point for the sardines to go, for the sardine fishermen to go, because it's much easier to harvest the sardines around the marine permaculture than it is to try to find them elsewhere. So uh, to me, that's a very good natural sign. And we see millions of sardines hanging out at the marine permaculture. And we have evidence that it's regenerative because we actually find squid eggs and juvenile fish that are younger than our deployment of the marine permaculture that are growing. It's actually a nursery. I've had several of our interns come out with us and they say, this is, this is a nursery. These fish are just growing here. And it's just, you know, kind of a revelation to realize when you actually go snorkeling on the marine permaculture, just how regenerative it is. I mean, people kind of wonder, oh, maybe you're just attracting fish. Maybe they're coming from elsewhere. But anecdotally, when we go diving, we know we're growing more fish. And furthermore, with isotopic stable isotope studies, we'll be able to demonstrate that these fish, you know, grew up on the marine permaculture because the upwelling water has different isotope ratios. And so we'll be able to distinguish between the fish that just showed up and the fish that have been growing and living there. And so that's a really key aspect as well. But ultimately, it's all about getting to hectare scale and making it practical for the seaweed fisherman farmer family to get out there and basically keep an eye on their marine permaculture, do some fishing and harvest every uh, 45 days with a new seaweed crop that they can take to market. Sounds like there's just so much potential in this. And I'm wondering how you pitch this concept to the local people in the area where you did this, uh, this initial project. What was the, I guess, the strategy of communicating the potential benefits and getting them comfortable with the idea of doing things in a different way than they had traditionally? Well, initially we did go to the mayors and they were actually very familiar with the seaweed farming because the seaweed farming has occurred since the 1970s in the central Visayas region, all the way down to Mindanao and even up towards Luzon. Um, and so there is quite a tradition of growing seaweeds, but the plight of the seaweed farmer has been well known that the water is getting warmer and warmer. 
the nutrient levels are too low. And it's part of global warming, you know, and the reality is unless we restore overturning circulation of that deep water, we're not going to get the production of seaweeds that we once had. So when we explain this to some of the local mayors of the communities in the Visayas, they were all in. I mean, it, literally, we got a permit in, in six to eight weeks. Uh, not only one, but two or three communities came in with this. And I've got to share with you a story that, um, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, everything was getting shut down. In fact, in the Philippines, it was almost a military lockdown. But when we talked with, we met again with the, with the Coast Guard, with a local barangay, and with the local uh, fishing, uh, fishing communities and the fish, local fisheries groups, and they realized, you know, how essential the seaweed farming research was going to be to the uh, livelihoods of these local seaweed farmers. They just deemed our operation as an essential industry, right? Because it's producing food. Yeah, yeah. And so we were deemed a, an essential industry. And right in the middle of a military lockdown, you know, we got approval from the Coast Guard, from the local barangay, and the local fisheries to be operating our marine permaculture offshore. And, you know, we were careful. We kept things under quarantine. But we um, effectively, um, you know, uh, were able to demonstrate the superior growth of these red seaweeds to deep water irrigation, two or three times the growth that we would see with uh, normal baseline growth during that time of year with uh, red seaweeds that were not irrigated. Hmm. So it's amazing. And I've got to share with you also, you know, the sardine fishermen started fishing around our system like just days after we got out there. I mean, it was just like they were all in. This was, you know, very quick adoption. And the, now we've had seaweed farmers come over from the other islands and come and work with us to learn and train how to operate the marine permaculture, how, how to work it so that they could then take this knowledge back to their villages and be able to use marine permaculture uh, irrigation services to uh, really uh, regenerate the production that was in the previous decades but is now um, compromised by climate disruption. And is there a funding mechanism to help them get their own operations started on their, their separate islands? We need to build towards that. We've been in discussions uh, with the World Bank and with the um, International Finance Corporation to really help uh, finance these projects as we scale them to hectare scale and beyond. But we need to develop this institutional finance. With the World Bank, it would come through the state and local governments where we can enable communities to effectively finance the irrigation services that are needed for these seaweed farms to thrive. And so we're going to have to, you know, we're, we're building to a hectare scale now. And with that demonstrated, then we need to develop a uh, effectively a clean development mechanism of sorts of a new kind. And that is um, enabling these sustainable businesses to thrive. And uh, so we see a public private partnership as really being key in this area. And we're actually raising private funds to enable this entire marine permaculture industry to, to thrive. And we're gonna build an alliance of organizations around the world that can effectively utilize this technology, improve it, and fold those improvements back into the global association so that we can make the progress that the earth needs in order to address our carbon budget in time. Not to mention food security. The food security in the ecosystem comes first, but then we wanna measure the carbon uh, balance from this uh, from this regenerative intervention as well. Yeah, of course. It seems like there's so many ways that you can be analyzing this for the myriad benefits that it has in a holistic sense. And to expand on what you were talking about, on proving the technology. I know that you had mentioned before we started the interview that you're starting to integrate 
bamboo materials into the materials that make up the the infrastructure, the engineering aspect of these underwater farms. Can you first, I guess, tell me about what components it requires and then how you're integrating the new materials in with that? Well, we have to build, uh, you know, particularly in the Visayas, you've got doldrums to deal with. And when it gets really hot and sunny and you've got doldrums, you have, uh, I mean, our marine permaculture design is designed to be able to utilize wave energy offshore be able to utilize uh, wind energy in the higher latitudes and be able to even utilize ocean thermal energy in the future. But when it comes to the doldrums, you're really dealing with solar energy. That's the strongest correlation. So we're looking at and developing marine solar platforms that can power the solar irrigation pumps effectively. And so we've got these solar irrigation systems, but they need to be above the water surface. And then the seaweed platforms need to be below the surface. And we've got a deep water irrigation pipe that's coming up from the deep. It turns out there's a you know, proven uh, high density polyethylene has been a proven structural material for 50 year timescales in these undersea platforms. So it works really well underwater. But then above water, it gets really hot. And it turns out the bamboo in some ways does better as a structural material above the water surface because it's flexible, it's adjustable, and it can withstand the heat pretty well. Um, in fact, it can withstand the heat better than the polyethylene. So below the water surface, the polyethylene works great. And above the water surface, the bamboo works really well. So we're finding this combination to be uh, one of the best practices where, you know, in flexibility, there is strength. And flexibility is all about uh, bamboo. It's polyethylene is very flexible as well. And we need to build these flexible structures that can withstand the rigors of nature. And uh, that appears to be a combination of bamboo and polyethylene underwater. That's fascinating. It makes total sense because I've researched for quite a long time different treatment methods for bamboo in order to extend its life uh, in use in buildings. And one of the oldest traditional methods is soaking it in seawater and getting a saline solution into uh, the capillary system on the inside that replaces the carbohydrates or at least salinates them sufficiently so that they're not attractive to bugs and fungus. And so it just, it, it seems like it's all coming full circle to use it as a building material in this innovative context, but still kind of integrated into a way that utilizes a traditional way of preserving the material for even longer. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's all about sustainable development. What amazed me is I just put in a, re a request for a quote on a pallet of solar panels from China and we're down to 18.5 cents per kilowatt hour, uh, per kilowatt. And so that's like this new low, right? 18 cents a watt. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, I couldn't believe it. And it's like, okay, what can we do to use that, that you know, very inexpensive resource and some local materials like bamboo and create a platform that can enable really excellent balance of system costs so that we can build a simple solar irrigation system that doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg and it can be very effective at hectare scale. This is really exciting. Now, one thing that I was interested in is, in a previous interview that I did with Enric Sala, the founder of the Pristine Seas Project with National Geographic, he told me that conservation is actually the most economical way of regenerating marine ecosystems. Essentially, that leaving certain areas alone is enough to allow them to bounce back. Now, you're talking about taking a more active role in sort of kickstarting these damaged ecologies. What are the advantages of a more active approach? And is it absolutely necessary in, in most of these marine contexts? 
Well, we have to start with doing fewer bad things in the ocean. But if you talk to Alan Savory on land-based examples, that wasn't enough. In other words, they went to conservation in, in Africa and even in the U.S. And they put fences around the land and they watched the land die slowly. And that really wasn't enough. But Alan Savory and the Savory Institute has done incredible work to show that it's the combination of suitable rotational grazing, suitable land management, and actually hoofed animals, which get moved around. They spend one or two days on a particular patch of pasture, and then they get moved. They get moved naturally by predators. But if we don't have the predators, you gotta move them you know, as a farmer. Maybe a drone will move them in the future. And you keep them rotating, right? And like the, the goats that we love, you basically keep, keep the goats on one pasture for one day, and then 29 days of recovery. And that is the key, because it's the poop and the pee and the hooves breaking the, the, the crust of the soil. Uh, and then 29 days of recovery, those plants grow back much faster and you sequester so much more carbon dioxide into the soil. This is a terrestrial example, but that's a case where you need active management to actually bring the earth back to thriving. And similarly, you know, if you let all the animals out, right, in the last 30 years, we've fished half the fish biomass out of the ocean, right? And um, in, in the last century or so, 90% of the big fish are gone. So it's as if we got a barn, you know, and, and the, the barn doors are open. All the animals have left the barn. If you close the barn door now, you're not going to have any animals inside the barn. So we think that, um, you know, look, Easter Island was stable as a, as a rainforest. It's also stable as a savanna. And like the, somebody cut down the last tree on Easter Island and it's not coming back. You know, no, matter, no amount of wishing is going to get us back to a rainforest on Easter Island if there are no trees on Easter Island. So that's where we are in the oceans, right? I mean, the, the oceans are stable, thriving with fish everywhere. And they're stable as a dead ocean, right? And the reality is uh, we've depleted the sardine fisheries off Namibia. We've depleted the sardine fisheries off of uh, Northern California. Off of Portugal, they're, they're expecting a collapse of the sardine fishery in the next five years. And 18,000 sardine fishermen in Portugal alone will be out of work and a way of life. So unless we find a way to regenerate those sardine fisheries, it's not going to happen by itself. Yeah, that's really I mean, where marine culture comes in. That's what it is, right? We're, we're at the point where these systems are degraded to the point that they are not going to kind of self-seed without some sort of intervention. And, you know, in your example with the rotational grazing pattern, certainly the ideal thing would be able to reinstate the large herds that made their way along the American savanna and the rotational grazing happens naturally as they're moved around by predators. But given that we fenced off huge portions of the land that we've removed the predators, it's not going to happen on its own. And conservation is a concept that works much better if all of the elements are in place for it to sort of do what it was designed to do. But when those uh, elements are removed, it requires some sort of active intervention in order to, I guess, mimic the patterns that are required for its health until it can take over on its own. That's a really good point. And with the sardines, it's fine. You know, if you have a billion sardines, they create their own habitat. They do just fine. But if you don't have a billion sardines, how do you get to a billion sardines? And I've seen time and again, diving, free diving on kelp forests, the sardines living in the kelp. And 
that's a really key insight that until they get to their bigger populations, they need to use a habitat like a kelp forest to actually regenerate. And that's where we really came upon the inspiration that we move from fewer bad things in the ocean, which are important and necessary, but not enough, to doing more good things in the ocean. And that's our vision for marine permaculture, to regenerate the ecosystem services that are provided by the diminishing kelp forests, which are 95% depleted in Northern California, and they're 95% gone in Eastern Tasmania. If we regenerate those ecosystem services offshore, we can regenerate the kelp forest, the associated uh, services, and ultimately bring back the habitat for those sardine fisheries and ultimately the sardine fisheries themselves. Mm. Now, it seems like you've got a pretty good overview of the way that these ecosystems that you're creating through the marine and even the freshwater farming enterprises ties in with a larger holistic system and the health of that system, uh, both economic and uh, ecological. Can you tell me how you envision marine farming enterprises functioning as part of a regenerative economy and what benefits they can bring beyond the products that they produce and the money earned? Yes. Well, uh, to start with, we've got the family-sized hectare farm that can work from Australia to Philippines to Indonesia to the Americas even. And those can be relatively close to shore. And um, they've, you know, in many places, you've got access to deep water not very far away. And so that's accessible by a family-sized farm, and I think that can provide a really sustainable uh, and local community-level benefit that would be awesome. Then further offshore, and we've got 300 kilometers of exclusive economic zone, you can have 100 hectares on a larger commercial scale that can really address major needs that are, you know, that are present when it comes to feeds that can eliminate most of the um, enteric methane of ruminant livestock. Um, we've got uh, larger fertilizer applications for row crops, hundreds of millions of acres in the United States alone, but um, certainly India and um, uh, and Asia as well. And the opportunity to um, you know, address food, uh, half of the seaweed that's harvested is used for food today, and we're looking forward to developing new food products that'll be transformational as well. So those are some of the direct economic benefits that occur, but then furthermore, when it comes to ecosystem services, so much of it, it's really about the health of the kelp forest. And that has to do with this habitat that there are thousands of species that rely upon the kelp forest for some part of their life cycle. And when you have that habitat offshore, it can work well, especially during our times of climate disruption. Between the years of 2015, 2016, we had a major warm blob, a heat wave, a marine heat wave come down from Alaska and really shut down some of the upwelling of the California current. And between that and a strong El Nino of 2015, 2016, it really devastated the kelp forests that were. And without having these kind of kelp forest ecosystem services offshore that could be uh, using this irrigated upwell water to work well, the, the kelp forests were devastated. We lost 90% of the kelp forest. And the net result was a loss of a factor of 10 in the sardine population, a loss of thousands, most of the seals and sea lions were lost. And tens of thousands of seabirds were lost as well. And so it was really a collapse of, of the ecosystem offshore during those years. And we saw thousands of sea lions starving to death. Um, so it was a very severe situation. And if you have these kind of ecosystem services offshore, we'll be able to survive the next marine heat wave, the next El Nino, with far greater resilience because the sardines will have a place to go. The sea lions will have some sardines to eat. 
and the seabirds, again, will have some, uh, some of the sea life to eat as well. As a result, um, even if we lost our nearshore kelp forests, we could have those regenerative kelp forest ecosystem services available offshore on marine permacultures that could ensure better resilience to survive the next marine heat wave. Mm, that gives a really good idea of just how urgent this work is, seeing as these types of events are becoming more common all the time. They are. They're really essential. And, you know, it goes further because in tropical areas, we can do marine permaculture growing seaweed in the tropics. But while we're actually irrigating the seaweed, we're actually also cooling off the mixed layer of the ocean. And when we do that, just half a degree or one degree Celsius, that's enough to prevent coral reefs from bleaching and to actually reverse their coral bleaching. And we've demonstrated since 2009 the fact that, um, you know, these coral reefs in the summer are living within one degree of mortality. And by cooling off just a half a degree to one degree during the hot summer months, these corals can continue to survive and even thrive. And so we see marine permaculture as a model to not only producing a sustainable seaweed harvest, but actually cooling some high value reefs enough to keep those key reef ecosystems alive uh, during the difficult years and decades to come. It can keep things going long enough that those surviving reefs can become the diaspora that will lead to reef propagation globally once we get our carbon budget back into balance. And I'm curious, what are some of the barriers that are preventing the active regeneration of marine ecosystems right now? Well, some of the challenges is it's fairly capital intensive to develop the initial stages. And so we are in the process of raising that capital. In fact, we had a um, successful crowdfunder in Australia that raised two thirds of a million dollars for Australian kelp forests. And now we're in the phases of a, um, a crowdfunder in the US in conjunction with the 2040 film. We've been doing a crowdfunder and I'm very happy to say that this year we'll be able to announce achieving the first milestone, which is a quarter million dollars to um, raise towards a thousand square meter seaweed forest that'll be deployed in the Pacific Ocean. So we have a crowdfunder on our website, climatefoundation.org, and it's under the 2040 heading. And this is a crowdfunder that everyone can contribute, and we've got small and large donations going in. But we've, we're reaching our first milestone this year, and we're looking forward to scaling towards that 1,000 square meters. So it's a way to effectively build the capital that we're going to need to build to show the 1,000 square meter system works, that we can get up to a hectare, show that it's economically sustainable, and then replicate that hectare scale family farm across the Pacific Ocean. Wow. Wow. This is really exciting stuff. And yeah, I just, I feel like I've learned so much in this short interview. How can listeners learn more and even participate in marine permaculture projects or perhaps even start one themselves? Well, uh, check out our website because we've got on it some ideas on how to get involved, how to participate. We're interested in developing uh, local communities that want to develop marine permaculture. And we're, um, you know, we're actually working with a number of volunteers around the world to actually uh, reach out, get involved, and, and participate. And so whether it's um, donating some time, contributing uh, time and effort, uh, sweat equity, if you will, or, uh, or if you don't have time, you know, contributing to the, the fundraiser that will enable us to get to the 1,000 square meter scale and get to that family size hectare. Those are our aspirations for the future. Check out the film 2040, which is a really wonderful description of the hopeful view of our future in 2040. And we're very happy that marine permaculture is one of several solutions that are featured in the 2040 film. Yeah, I saw that one. You guys did a great job in uh, explaining through that medium. 
and I hope it definitely <laughs> continues to get seen by more people as an inspirational resource. Well, look, Brian, it has been fantastic to talk to you about this. I can tell that we can go on for a whole lot longer and there's so much more information to share, but perhaps we'll leave it for a second session. Um, can you give some more contact information as to people can, how people can find out very specifically about how to get, I guess, projects started in this way? Yes. Well, I would start with climatefoundation.org. They can send an email to info at climatefoundation.org. And we're happy to uh, talk with them about, um, you know, how we can get these uh, capacity built and how we can effectively replicate the hectare sc scale family uh, marine permaculture uh, across the oceans and really um, become the future that the earth needs in order to feed the world, in order to regenerate life in the oceans, and in order to balance our carbon budget in a practical timescale. Well, there you have it, everybody. Let's get started. Let's start taking some action on this. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time today. I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thank you, Oliver. It's a real pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.